Good morning. It's good to be with you as we uh, now turn our attention to God's Word and worship through the teaching and preaching of the Word. We'll be in uh, Romans chapter 7 this morning. So should we not give commands? Should we not correct our children? Are you saying that the law of God is bad? These were just some of the questions that arose from the sermon last Sunday. Questions that arose because I asserted that the gospel, not the law, nullifies sin and produces righteousness. And uh, and Paul in Romans 7 verses 1 through 6 begins to unpack for us how that is so. He begins to unpack for us the, the gospel of grace. And he, and he says this gospel, it sets us free. It sets us free from the law, which has held us captive to our sins so that we may bear fruit to God by the new way of the Spirit. And that's crucial for us to understand the role of the law. It's crucial as we seek to answer these questions. Is, is the law bad? Should I not give commands? It's interesting here that he, he says the gospel of grace released us from the law. It moved us from not being under the law. So that, that should impact us in some way to say that the law doesn't function the way maybe we tend to think it functions. Paul concludes Romans 7, 1 through 6, with this principle. He says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code. It's that principle that I I began to flush out a little bit at the end of last week's sermon. Um, I began to to tease this principle out. You you might say that I tried to stir the pot a little bit, and and, and I think through some of the questions I was successful. I wanted us to feel the radical nature of God's grace. I want us to feel the radical nature of this gospel, which is what Paul would have encountered when he would be going into the Jewish synagogues where they would open up the law and he says, Jesus Christ has come to release you from the law. What are you saying, Paul? That the law is bad? That these commandments, we're not to give ourselves to them? And Paul says, our relationship to the law has changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. God's grace has freed us from being under the law. So as we consider um, more about the law's relationship to sin, and more importantly, our relationship to the law, we need to understand that God's grace is the means, is the mechanism by which transformation in one's life comes. But we all have the tendency, though, to fall back into law. We all have this innate kind of uh, relapse, if you want to put it, um, to fall back into um, putting ourselves under the law because, well, we're still in the flesh, right? We still, um, 
we, we still function in this old age. The, the new age of the new creation of Jesus' return, it hasn't yet come. And so we are, we are in these bodies of flesh. We are trapped in some sense. We're still susceptible to sin. And so as we uh, live the Christian life, we struggle to trust the gospel in every day. And when we struggle to trust the gospel, we relapse to law. Because it's easier to live by sight than by faith. In other words, when we lack trust in the transformative power of God's grace, we will turn to law. And we turn to law because we like this feeling of security, but I want to tell you it's an illusion. It's an illusion when we turn back to law. We like to feel like we're under control and that we can produce the change that we long to see if we enact law. That's why people go and picket outside places. That's law. We're going we're gonna to just tell you what we're against, whether it's peaceful or not, and we're going to bring about change. Well, it never does, does it? In fact, you do that, it just heightens tensions, right? Well, Paul's saying the same thing. You start applying the law to this situation. You're trying to bring transformation. You're trying to produce righteousness, both in yourself and in another. And you start throwing law at it. It will not accomplish what you think it will. At best, it will create an illusion that you're under control. At best, it will create a facade of, of righteousness that's not really there. That's what Paul, or I mean Jesus said to the Pharisees, right? He says, you're whitewashed tombs. Oh, you look good on the outside. But you were full of dead man's bones. See, the law doesn't actually solve the problem, Paul is saying. It only affects the outside. But the problem is the inside has to be changed. And so the gospel says, verse 6 of Romans chapter 7, you've been released from the law. So why would you subject yourself and anyone else back to being under it? To do so, we're going to see this morning, makes the law an instrument of death and judgment. And it does the exact opposite of what you think it will do. It is this radical concept of God's grace that results in Paul getting the question, so is the law sin? You see that in verse 7? What shall we say? That the law is sin? That, that's the same kind of question I was getting. And I, 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 hopefully I'm tracking with Paul. Those are the responses I'm getting. And it's this misunderstanding that Paul begins to unpack and address in verses 7 through 25. But this morning we're just going to look at uh, 7 through 12. And so I invite you to follow along with me as I begin reading. Romans chapter 7, verse 7. What shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, it would not have known sin. It would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. 
the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Here in these, these six verses, 7 through 12, Paul defends the goodness of the law. So is the law sin? He says absolutely not. By no means the law is not sin. Is the law bad? No, the law is good. The law is righteous. The law is holy. That's what he gets at, at the end of verse 6. He answer, or verse 12. He answers his question that he posed in verse 7. So he's defending the goodness of the law, but here's where we, we're going to have to, to follow his train of argument. We're going to have to put our thinking hats on this morning. He's defending the goodness of the law while at the same time maintaining that it is powerless to transform the sinner's heart. It's powerless to do that. And the reason the law is unable to nullify sin is because it has been hijacked by sin. That's what he's going to say. The law has been hijacked by sin, and the law, therefore, has now become the base of operations by which sin is doing its dirty work. It becomes the launching pad for more and more sin. And you might be saying, okay, so how at the same time can the law be good, holy, and just, but it's also the base of operations for sin? And what Paul is, is going to say that is the good, holy, and righteous law of God entering this sinful world has a chain reaction, has a chemical reaction. And the law then becomes a catalyst for sin, even though it itself is not sin. Paul twice in this passage says, sin sees the opportunity. It's like a roaring lion seeking who it may devour. And it uses the law to accomplish its means. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Here's what he's going to say. Sin takes God's holy, good, and righteous law and makes it its instrument, its weapon of death. And we're going to see how that happens so that we don't misuse the law. That's what I want us to get to this morning. So this morning, if you're taking notes, I want us to understand the purpose of the law. That's what we're going to find out this morning. So why was the law given if this is what it does? What is the purpose of the law so that we will get this rest and the power of the gospel of grace? Brothers and sisters, I want you to rest. I want you to find the freedom, the love, the joy of not being under law. And that you don't have to interact with one another under law. It's not just that you don't have to. You, you, you can't do that anymore because you've been released from those shackles. And it's only when you understand the power of the gospel, you can say with Paul in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is what? It's what? It's the power. You're beginning to see, oh, that, that was the thesis statement of Romans. The gospel is where the power is. And so often we, we only go after what we can see, but the gospel says, trust me, trust me. 
No, no, no. I have to have a list of rules, God. I got to rule that way. No, you don't. That's not how I saved you. That's not how this works. But we all have our hearts, we tend to that way. And, and I hope to unpack that a little bit more. So this morning, I want us to understand the purpose of the law. So what is its purpose then? If it's not to give us rules to live by. I want us to understand the purpose of the law so that we will rest, rest in the power of the gospel of grace. So I've broken this up into two parts with each having three points, all right? The purpose of the law. We're going to see the purpose of the law is threefold this morning. The purpose of the law is to reveal sin, to aggravate sin, and to condemn sin, okay? And then we're going to look at the proper use of the law. Okay, or, or what the law's intent was on a positive side, okay? And I'll give those points in a minute. So the first purpose of the law is to reveal sin. Paul says in verse 7, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. So Paul is arguing the law is holy, good, righteous, it's just. And it has this purpose. It reflects the character of God. And when the sinner comes in contact with God's character through the law, their true nature is revealed. That's what's going on. We see ourselves when we encounter the law in light of the purity of God's law and the contrast is stark. And Paul specifically highlights the 10th commandment. He says, you shall not covet. What does that mean? What does it mean not to covet? Not coveting means to, to desire something that is not yours or is forbidden. The law says you shall not desire something that's not yours or what is forbidden. And Paul recalls this command because... This is the base sin that occurred in the garden with Adam and Eve, is it not? God says, you can have of any tree in this garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. Well, what did they do? They coveted. They coveted. And Paul is recalling this imagery here through his own personal testimony because Why? We're all in Adam. And we sin the same way. This is how sin came into the world. Coveting. And it's interesting here, out of the Ten Commandments, it's the only commandment that deals with the heart. Everything else of the other nine is actions. And so this probably why it concludes with this, this, this commandment, because really it's the one that reveals the real problem. The reason you do not worship and love God is because you love and worship yourself. You want that glory. It's coveting. The reason that you do not obey your parents is because you want your own autonomy. The reason that one commits adultery is because you are tired of your wife, you want another one. Or husband, for that matter. The reason you murder is because you don't have and they have it. Or they have wronged you and therefore you feel like you're going to take what is rightfully yours. It's all coveting. And what Paul is going to say is that coveting leads to all other sins. I want, therefore I act. And so it reveals that we want something or someone more than God. 
that's what the law does, and that's all it does. It reveals that you and I are coveters, right? Because when we hear that command, all of us says, yep, I've been there, right? This, this may not help, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you what popped in my mind. I, I thought of the scales in the Willy Wonka movie. Okay, you know where the golden goose eggs or something like that? And what does the scale do? It just says whether it's a good egg or a bad egg, right? And they put the scale, the egg on there, and boom, rotten ones where they, they go to the trash chute. Is the problem with the scale? No, the problem's not with the scale. The problem's with the rotten egg. And then the rotten little girl hops on it. It's like rotten. Boom, right? That's what the law does. It just tells you the truth. It's all it is. And what we're going to see here is when we apply the law wrongly, oftentimes it's, oh, I just tell you the truth. I just say it how it is. Well, that's stone cold hard. And it brings no hope. John's gospel says that when Jesus came, he came with grace and truth. He came with grace and truth. Law has no grace. But you fail. Is there a curve? No. Is there any mercy? No. Judgment. Are you a coveter? But, but, but. Yes, you're a coveter. That's all it does. It's all the law can do. It just says, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And the more you listen to it, the more it just says, it's worse than you think, it's worse than you think, it's worse than you think. That's what the law does. It reveals that our hearts are full of coveting, that we are rotten. But it does nothing to change it. It does nothing. And so the problem's not with the law, but with the sinful heart. But Paul doesn't stop there. While the law does not change the sinner's heart, it does aggravate the heart. It aggravates sin, it, it provokes sin, and it, and it leads now to the second purpose of the law is to aggravate sin. Paul first, he denies that the law is sinful, but here in verses 8 through 9, he explains that, that sin is somehow intertwined with the law. Look at, look at those verses. He says, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, it produced in me all kinds of coveting covetousness for apart from the law sin is dead i once was alive apart from the law but when the commandment came sin came alive and i died he he says sin hijacks the law and it makes it its base of operations leading to the increase and the multiplication of sin that's what happens and so paul says the law told me not to covet you shall not covet he says, the strangest thing happens, I want to covet all the more. And you and I, we know that's true in our own life, right? You cannot have it, and somehow the forbidden thing is just the sweetest thing, right? That which we cannot have, we often want the most. And the problem's not with the law, it's not with God's goodness, it's not with his character. It's, it's, it's showing our rebellious heart to the character of God. That's what it is. We see the light, this is what he means, you're dead in your sins, you're enslaved to your sin. When God's righteous character confronts the sinner's heart, it doesn't draw them in, it repels them, and it makes them hate God even more. That's what he's talking about. 
It's like a chemical reaction when, when sin and the law meet, and sin somehow transforms the law and makes it a catalyst for sin. Paul's very personal when he says in verse 9, I, I once was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, I, or sin came alive, and I sinned. What's, what's he talking about? He, he's likely talking about his, his experience of finally getting what the law is saying and what it did to him. He's experiencing the law bearing weight on his conscience. And let me help you understand this. So when Adam and Eve are in the garden, and God says, you can have of every tree of this garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you cannot have, their initial reaction probably was not, oh, I want that tree. When did the commandment become now a burden? When the temptation came. When the temptation came. And Paul is, is likely referring to how he experienced sin in his life. The commandment comes, and it, and it now coupled with the temptation, it doesn't bring any relief. It actually makes the temptation more. The command to obey your mother and father, it, 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 it's nothing to agree with with your mind, right? I can talk to my kids right now and I can say, hey, do you want to obey mommy and daddy? And they say, absolutely. Until the temptation comes, right? Right? When those two things mix, boom, that, does, that command is not helpful, Right? It actually makes them want to hide it. I can say, hey, on the way, we'll do this today because we have community group at my house. Now, I, I have confidence of better things for you, as the writer of Hebrews says. But what typically happens is we're going to go home and clean. Yes, do you all hear that? We're going to clean. Yes, mommy, daddy, we're going to clean. So why don't we clean when we get home? Because I'd rather watch TV. I'd rather... Do something else. I want to play a video game. All those things now collide. And that's in our heart now. The more I talk about obey, 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 actually just increases deception sometimes. Not always. Are we cleaning upstairs? Yep. But why isn't it cleaned? It's been an hour. That's what Paul is talking about here. The commandment. Do not commit adultery. Well, I'm probably talking to almost anybody on the face of the planet and say, do you think adultery is wrong? Absolutely. Until the desire comes. And that command does you no good. It just makes you want that person that you cannot have more. That's what the law does. And it's not a problem with the law. It's the problem with our sin. It rebels. And so we've experienced sin coming alive in that like that, haven't we? Paul paints this picture of, of sin somehow lying dormant, and he's not talking about the fact that apart from the commandment, we're not sinners. He's just saying that, that we then begin to experience sin, and we feel it when the commandment comes. It's like a beast that leaps upon our heart and makes us desire to rebel. And I imagine if we're honest with ourselves, our sin has frightened us at times, right? Hasn't it? There are things that have popped into your heart, a desire that you have, and you're like, what, where'd that come from? I'm sure with each one of us, there are things we have thought, things we have felt, 
that feel alien to us, and we would never share it with anyone because we're almost in denial ourselves. You're experiencing sin coming alive through the law. And it's like, okay, before that, I kind of lived in ignorant bliss. It wasn't that I wasn't a sinner, but it wasn't until I encountered the law that somehow this thing now became uncontrollable. So when the law is applied to those sinful desires, it actually begins to fan the flame of sin. It doesn't put it out, it fans it. It stokes it. So what does Paul mean when he says that sin came alive and I died? That's the third purpose of the law, to condemn sin. Verse 11, he says, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. In the same way that God told Adam and Eve, For in the day that you eat of the fruit, you will surely die, so we die when sin comes alive in us. What do I mean by that? that experience of sin leaping into our hearts, that desire that comes, what comes with it? Shame, right? We even go into self-denial. I, I, I can't imagine the psychological effects of that. We, no, no, that, 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 that's not me. We almost don't even want to talk about it. Let's just get our mind off of it. And if that's the way you begin to deal with it, law, it's just like I can't get my mind off of it. It just starts accelerating. And in what sense do you die? You experience separation from God. You, you experience spiritual death. And this spiritual death, just like with Adam and Eve, it, it leads ultimately to physical death and eternal judgment by God. And so Paul expands that in verse 11, and he, he says that this law or sin deceived me through the law. How does sin deceive us and end up killing us through the law? Let's go back to Adam and Eve. What did the serpent do? If you do that, you won't die, right? You don't, the law, it won't kill you. There's another way. That's what the serpent did, it deceived them. And in the same way, Paul, in his upbringing as a, as a good Jewish boy, the law was taught to him, you live by this, you will find life. In fact, even Moses says, I set before you life and death. If you keep the law, there will be blessings. If you do not, the curses of the law will come upon you. It's what the law says. And Paul says the strangest thing, the thing that promises life, sin deceives me. And it actually comes into an instrument of death. Paul, as a Pharisee, was deceived by having an inflated view of himself. He talks about it in Philippians. He says, as to the law, I was what? Blameless. And I don't think Paul would have said I was perfect. But he said, I am keeping the law as, as well as anybody can keep the law. Sin was deceiving him to think that that's the means by which he becomes right with God. He thought that was the means of gaining life. And so sin deceived him into thinking that, that he was blameless when in reality the law was telling him, you're a blasphemer and you're a murderer. Do you see that? 
That's how sin deceives us. And that's how it deceives you and I when we start imploding and, and applying the law to our own hearts and to the hearts of other people. It deceives us that we can actually achieve the, the end of keeping it. And what God has, one of the reasons God gave the law was to reveal sin, to increase sin, so that it would kill us and we would not turn to the law. That's why he was given the law. The whole project of Israel is a, is a living history that you cannot do this. And so Israel, by the end of Judges, is just as bad, if not worse, than Sodom and Gomorrah. And they've got the law. And if you're familiar with the story, king after king after king, they're always dealing with the externals and it always just means it just increases more sin. And what was the purpose of that? So that they would die and that they would cry out to mercy. That's what, that was it. God's purpose through the law was to show that sin is sinful beyond all measure. That's what he says in verse 13. We'll see this a little bit more next week. But he says, did that which is good then bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Why? In order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Here is the purpose of the law. To crush you. To crush you. To leave you hopeless. So that when the hope comes, you say, I'll take that. It suffocates you. It says you are condemned. And then when mercy comes, <gasps> it's a breath of fresh air. That is what God was doing through the law and Israel. A sin was to show them the exceeding sinfulness of their sin so that they would say, we cannot do it. We beg for mercy. That's the only way you can come to the Lord is His grace. So the proper use of the law is to cause sinners to cry out to God's mercy ultimately in Christ, Paul says. Romans 10.3 for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. That's what, that was what Israel did. They thought that was the way. It didn't result in it. And his explanation, verse 4, is, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That word end means you need to have the idea of fulfillment or goal. The goal of the law was to drive you to Christ. So this is now leading us into how, then how do we use the law? Well, number one, we want to get out from under it. We don't want to live there. It doesn't do what you think it will do. It kills. It's applying a sword and slicing. That's what the law does. So the proper use of the law is to lead to Christ. Proper use of the law is to lead to Christ. If the law was given to lead sinners to Christ, then that should be our heart when we interact with unbelievers trapped in sin. Okay? And this is where we need to be thinking, okay, evangelism here. Whether that's outside the walls of this church or even evangelizing in our home, the law is given to lead to Christ. Here's, here's the difference in pharisaical law using. 
Stop it. You don't do that. That's not how Christians act. We don't do that around here. This is what we always do. You will respect me. That's law. You say, all the, well, those things could be right. Law is holy, good, and righteous. But it doesn't produce what you think it will. It just produces more rebellion. But here's what Paul says. I want you, I want you to see this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He's, he's combating false teachers, which should make us very leery about using the law. He's confronting false teachers in 1 Timothy chapter 1 who are trying to get people to live under law. This is inside the church. But I want you to hear what he says about this to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is uh, if you're at the end of Paul's letters pretty much. And listen to what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now we know that the law is good. I mean, he's, same thing he's talking about in Romans. But notice the condition. If one uses it lawfully. Play on words there. The law is good if you use it for its right intent. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just. That is, believers right there. The law is not meant for you and me. So don't use it that way. But for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexual immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Paul's combating false teacher, teaching, which is trying to put Christians under the law, but Paul emphatically says that the law is not made for Christians. It's made for non-Christians. Why? To lead them to Christ. So they don't be under the law anymore. And he uses very descriptive terms, just kind of categorizing different sins that the law speaks to. And so what does he mean here? The, the proper use of law is to reveal sin and show that one is condemned under sin so that you may bring mercy in Christ. Those who misunderstand the law think that it produces righteousness. It's kind of like that story where, where Jesus sits at the table with Simon the Pharisee. I love this passage. Grace people love this passage because they see themselves as the prostitute who comes to Jesus. Luke chapter 7, you don't need to turn there. Pharisee who is all about the law. Law produces righteousness, has Jesus over to his house. Let's test him. And it's like he sets him up, he lets this prostitute come in. See how he reacts to that, because we know the law says they're filthy. The law says don't touch those people. They're condemned. And what happens? This woman comes in weeping with tears. She knows who Jesus is. She not only comes to him, she gets intimate by weeping with her tears, washing his feet, and then taking her hair down and drying them off. The law says she's filthy. Get away from her. And Jesus tells him a story about a debtor who's forgiven one who's forgiven just a minuscule amount, 
the other one who's given, who's forgiven an insurmountable amount. And he says, which one do you think is going to be most thankful? And Simon says, I suppose the one who's forgiven more. He turns to this woman and he says, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. The law says, get out of here, you're condemned. Jesus, full of grace and truth, transforms the heart and says, go and sin no more. Why? Because the basis is now a relationship and the basis is now love. The law remembers written on stone tablets. It's outside of you. It's cold. You go and touch it. It's literally cold to the touch. It's, it's hard. If you, if you hit it too hard, you'll, you'll, you'll prick your finger. You'd stump your toe. Everything about it is just, I can't, I don't have a relationship here. And that's where I want us to see when we come to the lost and to give them the law, we're doing it like Jesus. Yeah, we're going to call them to turn in repentance, but it's with a, it's with a love to say, I don't want you under the curse of the law anymore. I want you to come to the freedom that's in Christ. The law-based evangelism, which never produces anything but more death, it's a law-based evangelism. I used to, I used to see on, 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 at the University of Kentucky at the free speech area, churches would come out with pickets, with flames on their, on their picket signs. Maybe if you went to another public university, you experienced something similar. And people would be walking by and would just say, you're going to hell. You're smoking a cigarette, you're going to hell. And when the, when the Lambda group would come out, which was the gay uh, Greek society, it was literally war. Because they say, you all are going to hell. Why did, was that true if people do not repent of their sin? I mean, people wearing Metallica rock t-shirts, you're going to hell, that's a devil band. Maybe, but it wasn't, there was no warmth. It wasn't penetrating the heart. It was just cold. Now, how, what Jesus would have done, hey, let's go have lunch in the student center. Well, isn't he going to address their sin? Yes. But he's going to have a relationship first. He's going to show love first. He's going to experience the grace of God first, which warms their heart. And here's the deal. They already know they're in sin. They already know it. And they're expecting us Christians to bring down the hammer. Or the gospel of grace comes in, it's like a heater that warms the heart. It melts the ice. And you begin to have that relationship. And yeah, all the law people say, you can't do that. That's hanging out with sinners. Well, that's all right. I'm the friend of sinners, Jesus said. And it just rocked everybody's world. That's how we use the law to bring people to Christ. Yes, to show them the truth, but to do it with a heart, not to crush them, but let the law do that in the context of relationship, which then brings them to Christ. From that point on, we don't use the law. Now we rest in, Christ, in the gospel. That's the second point. Proper use of the law is to lead us to Christ. I'm really just unpacking that in two different ways so that we rest in the gospel. Now when we're de dealing with believers, when we're dealing with one another, whether that's in the church or in the home, we don't bring the law. 
Yeah, this is where some of you are going, oh, no, 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 no. Remember, it's not for the just, it's for the unjust. So husband, how do you appeal to your wife when you want her to do something? Do you bring law? Submit to me, because the Bible says it. You know, we laugh about it, but some of you do that. Well, that's not going to, that's just going to repel her. That's law. Obey me. God's made me in charge of you. Oh, that's inviting. (laughs) Right? No, we, we don't use the law like that. We now make appeals to the heart based on the gospel. If you're in Romans, look in chapter 12. This is now where Paul begins to make commands. But notice how he's going to begin this whole thing. Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Paul says, I have some things I need to instruct you by, and I'm going to appeal to you by the mercy of God so that you'll be transformed from the inside out. And that talks about that's resting in the gospel. Why? Let's look at 13 here, too. 13.8. People are accusing Paul of being anti-law. No, the law was to be fulfilled in Christ. And, Paul, and Jesus says that not one, not one iota of the law will be laxed. The problem is the law's experience with the sinful heart only deals with externals, but Jesus comes in and gets to the heart of the law, which is love God and love neighbor. And this is exactly what Paul tells the, the Romans as he is giving them commands, notice. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Do you see how that gets behind the externals? It gets to the heart of the matter. Verse 9, for the commandments, and he starts, listen, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this world. word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. This is how we rest in the gospel to produce righteousness. Later, Paul's going to call this the law of Christ. We're we're not under the law of Moses. We're under the law of Christ, which is what? Love God and love neighbor. And this love then compels us to obedience where the law seeks to control and actually doesn't address the heart issue. Let me give you an example. Talking about um, a kid's cleaning up. I'm making this up on the spot. But I can say, go up there, let's clean, and I can literally drag them around and do this. And we can get this thing done. We cleaned it. Move away. Well, did I really accomplish what I'm wanting? No, we got the task done, but it's an illusion. 
that we actually address the matter. But what I want them to do is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and love their neighbor, me, as their self. And how's the only way that's going to happen? They become a Christian. And so now I don't lash out out of wrath and fury. Clean that room or I will throw all your toys away. Guilty. <laughs> right? That's law. You will never if you don't do this. Well, that's real hopeful. It has no hope out of it. It leads nowhere except death. We use the law to lead to Christ. So when a believer falls into sin, think about this in the church, we don't condemn them. Serves you right, you're out of here. That's not what we do. We weep with them and we seek to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Remembering that we too are sinners saved by grace. And we call them to repentance out of a genuine love for them. We say, this is not how you know Christ, is it? I know you love Jesus. You know this is not in step with loving Jesus. I, and I start appealing to them and how Christ loved them. Christ has forgiven you to free you from this. How could you live in it any longer? I really thought I could do this in shorter time today, but I think I can sum it up here. Let's go to Philemon. This is Paul's last letter, which is you know, oftentimes we look at this letter and we're like, why is this thing even here? It's 25 verses about a runaway slave, and Paul's writing his master. But I want you to see how he appeals to Philemon to obey. If you're in Philemon, it's right before Hebrews. Philemon, verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. There's love God and love neighbor. He appeals to the gospel. That's where he starts. Brother, I know you're a Christian and I've heard of your faith and I know you love God and I know you love the saints. Okay? Jump down to verse 8. He's getting to his plea. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do it, to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Here's what Paul could have done. He had authority as an apostle. He could have said, there's no conversation here. You're going to let him go, and he's going to come with me for ministry purposes. We can use that authority card as parents, right? We can use that authority card as pastors, as bosses, in all kinds of settings. If we're the person in control, we can do that. But Paul says, I don't, that's not the way I want to move about this. Says, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. So how's he going to appeal to them? Verse 18. Actually, let's start in verse 17. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge him that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand and I will repay it. What's Paul doing? He's acting like Jesus. He says, I know this, I know this brother's offended you. I ask that you would receive him like you would me. 
I'm asking you do not count his sins against him. I'll, I'll absorb it. See how he's using the gospel now? And then he concludes verse 21. He says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. What is he doing? He's appealing to the gospel to produce righteousness, to do what's right, to obey. He says, in light of all these things, as I've ministered the gospel, I'm confident that you will obey. So do you trust the gospel like that? To produce change in one another when you come in conflict, you see something in another brother's life, or you see that in a believer's life in your own home? Is that how you interact? you appeal to them based on the gospel? Why, why can Paul do that? Why is Paul able to just let it go? Like he doesn't say, and when I get there, he better have his stuff outside the door and you better be ready for me. No, he leaves it to him. Why? And this is the third response. Because he relies on the work of the Spirit that's now in, in, in Philemon's heart. He knows there's a greater thing than the law inside of him. That when the gospel is heard in the heart of the believer, it's going to spur that believer to, to walk in righteousness. And this is where the freedom and rest in the gospel shines. The Holy Spirit works in His timing, not ours. We apply the law when we want it done now, right? We want you to change on my timeline, therefore I'm going to, I'm going to exercise force. I'm going to expect. I'm going to command. You can do that. It's not going to produce what you think it is. In other words, we don't have to resort to law to force change. And really, that change wouldn't be heart change anyway. That's what Paul's getting after with Philemon. He wants to stir up the gospel so that he sees this situation with new eyes. And now he doesn't, does, doesn't do it out of obligation because Paul's an apostle. He does it because he loves God and he loves his neighbor. He doesn't see Onesimus as merely his slave anymore. He sees him as a brother in Christ. That's why I, I, I know some of you parents who've raised kids you, who now are believers. You, yeah, you're the parent, but now you interact on them on a level as a brother and sister in Christ. You've changed how you relate to them. That's what Paul's trying to do. He relies on the Spirit to do this. And so I just want to close with this thought, thought and then we'll stand and we'll sing. I understand because it's my own heart's tendency to, to lean on law to get things done. But don't hear what Paul is saying here, that grace, extending grace, is somehow turning a blind eye to the sin. It's not. It's lovingly appealing to that believer or that person to live in the joy of Christ. And once you've appealed to them on that basis and they believe the gospel, the Spirit of God works in their heart to produce fruits for righteousness. Do you see that? And here's the test for us this week. We're going to find ourselves in different contexts by which we're going to be tempted to throw law at it. I want you to think, all right, I'm going to trust the gospel. You're going to be tempted to throw law at your own heart. Instead of turning to Christ, confessing sin, and resting in Him, you're going, you're going to turn to him and ask for mercy. 
And the Spirit of God's going to work in your heart. And in His timing, as you trust, He's going to lead you and transform your heart. So extending grace is not turning a blind eye to sin. It's lovingly appealing to an individual to live in the joy of Christ. Let's pray and we'll close in a last song. Lord, your grace is amazing. It is the power. It's come through the gospel, which is the power to transform. And Lord, it does what the law could never have done. And Lord, you came to us and you rescued us where the law stood far and just said you're a sinner. And Lord, I pray for us. Lord, these are big concepts. Even still, there can be fuzziness here about the law and how the Old Testament fits into these things. But Lord, here's what I, I, I pray for us this morning. I pray for my own heart. Lord, that we would meditate on the experience we had in your grace in our own life and how you have brought us to love you and walk with you. And Lord, that as we meditate, we realize, oh, your patience has been such long-suffering towards us and that kindness has led us to repentance. Lord, as we understand that, that we in turn would then be like you to others. And as we lavish that love and grace and kindness, knowing that in the heart of the believer, that will lead them to repentance. And so, Lord, that's going to require us to trust that this gospel is what we say it is. And, Lord, I pray that collectively, as you work that truth in our hearts this week, and I know you are, you're testing some of us really hard right now. I pray that we would learn Christ. And we experience the joy of knowing him. And then collectively, as we experience that, Lord, the, Lord, the world would experience that when they come in contact with us. And they say, I want that, Jesus. I want to love him much because he forgives much. Lord, that's our prayer. As in Jesus' name that we say these things. Amen. Let us stand and let's sing a closing song.